Well, hello uh, to the Waterford campus. It's good to see you guys again. I'm really glad to be able to spend some time with you and to the men and women at 33rd campus. Um, thanks for letting me spend a little bit of time with you. It is great to see you. Um, and for those of you who I have not met, met, my name is OJ. I'm the campus minister up at the Lake Mary campus, and it is just a treat to be with you. Um, today, we're going to be talking about worry. We come to this passage in the Sermon on the Mount and it's been really great because I don't know what you normally get on a Thursday night or when you're here, when you have a chance to be together, but probably your teacher or your teacher that is there, uh, they probably go out for about 30 minutes in teaching and kind of walk through it. I have a treat for you tonight. I've got this thing boiled down to one minute. So a one minute sermon on, on worry and it's gonna be all taken care of. And I've already used 30 seconds up in the introduction. Here it is. I was looking through studying it and I found in the great words of Bob Marley, as he says, don't worry about a thing because every little thing will be all right. Let's pray. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if that solved all of the problems of worry, if we could just not worry about it and everything's gonna work out? Now tell me that's not stuck in your head though, because now the rest of the day you're gonna sing and you'll probably feel a little bit better hearing it, but it's not that easy, is it? Worry is a real thing. If it was just that easy, we wouldn't be talking about it. It's not something that would be so near to us. Worry is something that'll be happening for all of us. It's a reality in our lives. And then I've been thinking about how much of my day I really spend worrying. I, I think of myself as a pretty relaxed and laid back person. I don't think too much about worry, but I also realize that a lot of my day is spent questioning or thinking or dreaming, which are actually a lot of times other words for worry in my life. Because here's how a typical day in my life goes. I wake up, the buzzer goes off, right? And it's the morning. And the first thing I think is, what did I forget to do last night? Did I turn the toaster off? Is the crock pot still going? Did I turn the hose off? Did I get everything done I was supposed to do last night? Did I text Chris back? I don't even remember. Did I forget to go to a meeting this morning that I was supposed to go to? I mean, it's the very first thing and already the worries of the day are there. So then I, I kind, of, kind of move through that and I realize, okay, we're, we're done there. And then I start thinking, what's for breakfast? Right? Do we even have food in the fridge? And I've got to go find it. A few minutes later, I have breakfast. And I kid you not, as soon as I finish eating breakfast, the first thought that's usually in my head, what am I going to do for lunch today? Who am I going to hang out with? What am I going to eat now? You're going to hear a lot of this revolves around food in my day. And that's just part of me. Um, and so then I go to lunch and, and I'm sitting there. And, and I kid you not, on Tuesday, I was working on the sermon. And I was sitting at this park. It's a place I go to write. And it's a place where a lot of my worries go away. It's on this beautiful lake, it's quiet. There's sometimes that deer walk out. It's really majestic. And the only worries that I have there are this one spider who was coming at me pretty hard. Um, but other than that, it was pretty safe. I was feeling really good. I'd gotten to a good place to take a break on writing this. And for 15 minutes, I stood up and I started to think about lunch. Where am I gonna go? Is it on the way home? Am I even gonna have time? What am I gonna do? And the irony was not lost on me that after writing for hours about worry, I spent 15 minutes worrying about a sandwich. And that's just the beginning of the day. And that's just about food. Because I know so many of us have the other questions, just the little things of the day, right? Will my car start the next time I go out to it? Did I remember to put gas in it? If I didn't, is there a gas station on my right for wherever I'm going so I don't have to go to the left-hand side and make the big U-turn and come back out? All of these questions, did I, did I turn my project in on time? Is, is my boss going to be mad at me because I forgot to do something yesterday? Will my friend or my girlfriend or my spouse still like me today? Uh, did my post get enough likes? Did people reply fast enough? Did they say the right things when they replied on it? Will my kid get into UCF? And that's for you, Waterford Campus. Charge on. And listen, these are the easy ones. And I get how ridiculous some of those sound. But that's how so much of our day is spent, is just thinking about the next 
moments and the next things. And I realize that a lot of those are silly when it compared to the weight of some of the things that you're carrying into the room. Uh, my friend Doris uh, has been living with us. She's from Malawi. And over the last couple of months, she's been living with her family and has been such a treat. And to be able to pray with her at night and to hear the stories of what's going on, though a lot of these are things she carries with her, the actual weight of what she's going back into and her future and the questions she's asking and the provision in the midst of it. There are real questions and real worry that so many of us have. And if 15 years ago me knew that today me was talking about spending 15 minutes worrying about a sandwich, he would have socked me upside the head. Because 15 years ago, I remember that Christmas Eve. I remember that night leaving church and going to the gas station and, and hoping to get a sandwich. There we are again with sandwiches, right? Um, and pulling out my credit card and it got declined and trying to put gas in the car so I could get home to spend time with my family and realizing there's no money. And, and, and literally that minute, my uh, bank calling and saying, sir, you're so overdrafted, there's nothing left there. And this was on top of the months uh, of worrying and crying at night and wondering how am I gonna get through the mountains of debt that have piled up and the lack of income that are behind it. So what about the worries that you're carrying? What are the questions that you're asking? I'm guessing some of them might be, will my marriage make it? Uh, will I beat the cancer? How much longer does she have? Uh, will my case be okay? Will the bill collectors find me this month? Uh, will my kids be all right even if I'm not there? Where am I living tomorrow? Uh, will I be able to stay free from addiction when I get out? Does God really love me? Can I even trust the God that does all this, that I, the world, the way it is, and the worries that I have, and the, let the bad things happen? Can I even trust him? You see, worry, worry is a universal condition. It is one of the things that ties us together. And for some, the worry comes from a real or a perceived lack of the things you need, the food, the clothing, the housing that is there. Then there is a lack of security from not knowing if you will have what you need. Because if you just had what you need, if you just had the things there, if you just knew where they were come from, it would fix everything, wouldn't it? The fear of not having consumes your focus and the thoughts and the minutes and the hours to come. And for many others, our possessions consume us. We have what we need and then some. And having it and knowing where it's coming from and knowing what tomorrow brings keeps us grounded and secure. And there's a fear of losing it of clinging so tightly to these things that keep us together and holds our focus and our attention. On both sides, no matter where you find yourself, on the spectrum is a broken relationship with our possessions, with our futures. All of these anxieties and worries live on the outskirts of tomorrow. And it really boils down to a question, a deep-seated question, a question that has been in the midst of our soul since Adam was created since the garden was there from day one when humanity began. And the question is, who do you trust? Do you trust God? And do you really trust him? Or is he just a safety net in times of need or a backup plan in times of plenty? You see, here's the thing. God knows us. He knows you. He's always known you. And he knows how you're wired. And he knows how I'm wired. He knows where our focus goes and the deep cries of our heart as well as the momentary needs in our days. And he addresses our worry and our anxiety early and head on. And the incredible thing is that he actually gives a path through it. 
We're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible message that Jesus gave to his new followers, painting a picture of this new kingdom, this hope that he was bringing into the world. You see, Jesus is very early on in his ministry here on earth. He has just started out. He's called his disciples, these young guys. He's called them out of the security of their jobs. It's been very interesting to go back just a couple of chapters before this. These guys were on their boats with their family, with the family job, the thing that was gonna provide for them for the future, the thing they had been training for their whole life. And he says, come follow me and I'll show you something different. So they jump off the boat and they follow him. And all of a sudden they see incredible things. In chapter four, they start going throughout all of the area around and they're seeing healings, they're seeing demons cast out. They're seeing crowds of people throng around the teachings of Jesus. And in the midst of this, in the midst of these crowds, it says that Jesus pulled up on a mountainside and took these young guys with him, these disciples, these students of his, to teach them a lesson. And he starts to teach them and he tells them that they need to depend on God, that it starts with our need for him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, that they need him. At the very beginning, nothing starts without their deep need for him. And then he tells them that they need to care about the world around them, the people that he has created to love them so much. He's told them they're gonna be a salt and a light to a world that needs them. And then he raises the bar so high on how we care for one another. He takes human dignity to a whole new level. And it's daunting and it's beautiful at the same time because now not just murder is a problem, but even anger with someone else. Now it's become an even bigger deal. Now it's not just to love those who are like you or or who like you, but to love your enemies as well. And then he tells them how to live this out. He tells them to give quietly to those in need, to pray in secret to God, to fast quietly, to use and view money in a proper way. And then he comes to verses 25 through 34 of chapter six, where in your bulletins, if you wanna follow along, and it begins this way in verse 25, therefore, I'm gonna pause there because a wise professor once told me when you see it therefore in the scripture, it's there for a reason. See if you can work that one out of your head every time you read from now on. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, which you will eat or drink, or about your body, which you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I don't know about you, but as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, as we've spent these weeks with this challenging teaching, I found myself many weeks on edge, sometimes literally on the edge of my seat because so many of, of this teaching and so many of the things that Jesus said have challenged me to the core. I've had to look at how I live and how I love and how I use my resources and my time, how I use my attention towards God. It has been very challenging to me. 
And I've had weeks to process through that as we've walked through this and years of knowing this and having read it before. And as I've thought about this group of students, these disciples that are sitting there on the mountainside, he's minutes into this. This is one sermon and he has been giving to them and they have heard all of this, this beauty, this challenge, this thing that is pushing them to the very edge of their existence as they have left everything they have known and they're sitting here going, what does the future hold? And it is this and how can I possibly live up to all of this? And it feels like Jesus kind of opens a relief valve as we get to this, as he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying at a single hour of your life? And I can just picture them taking a breath as they've been hearing this challenge, this high challenge. And Jesus then says, don't worry. Don't worry. And he's speaking right to me and he's speaking right to me, you because the genius of this teaching is that though it was 2,000 years ago and though it was to a group of guys that had just left the security of their life and though some of you may even feel like you're in the midst of that kind of minute-by-minute battle right now and kind of walking through it, he's speaking to you. And he's speaking just as much to those of us who have too much dependence on our stuff and the worry on the other side of it. He's speaking to each and every one of us, do not worry, right to the heart of my anxiety, right to the heart of my worry. Don't worry about these external things. He says, look at the birds. And I have to picture these guys as they're sitting there, literally taking a minute to look out at the birds and to look around and see the birds flying about as they sing and as they see the colors of their plumage and as they're finding their food, as they're doing what birds do. They're active. They're doing the work that they were created to do, but they aren't worried. They're existing and they're finding their needs. And in the incredible thing in this, Jesus reminds us that God is good, that he is a good father, that he cares, that he provides, that he actually sees them and knows their needs and that he cares deeply for them. And I think that understanding this is a critical step towards not worrying. For thousands of years, God has provided not just for his people, but for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and he cares, and he's good. But he's not only good, and he not just provides, but he also creates beauty and goes beyond just the basics. In 28 to 30, it says, And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? You see, his focus wasn't just on their bare necessities. He didn't just take care of just the needs. He started to create beauty as well. He goes beyond. When they would have heard that imagery of Solomon's court, immediately they would have pictured the most majestic and the most elaborate place that they could have possibly imagined. And Jesus doesn't paint that picture by accident because that is the God that he wants them to know cares so deeply about them, a God that actually does and creates beauty, that he goes beyond the basic needs, that he cares that deeply, that he goes beyond, that he's not just good, but that he's also gracious. You see, the grace that we are offered in Jesus is echoed throughout creation. 
and the way that the master artist creates and shares beauty with the world. This grace that is offered to us is echoed throughout creation as God clothes the flowers of the field, as he puts the beautiful feathers of the birds that they've just talked about, as you get an image of the rolling ocean where we're going to celebrate baptism soon, the sunsets that come each night, God has created beauty. And Jesus wants them to know that he's not just a good father, that he's actually a good, good father. I think that song gets it really right when he describes him as a good, good father. And then he gives them a reminder that as followers of Jesus, as members of this new kingdom that Jesus is bringing to earth, that we are called to be different. He reminds these young disciples that in the midst of this relief, but they are also called to be different. In verse 31 and 32, he says, so don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. As followers of Jesus, we are salt and light to the world. We're different. We're set apart to draw attention to the one who has brought this kingdom in, to the one who offers hope. And he reminds his young disciples, as well as us 2,000 years later, that we will always have the choice to choose the way of the world or choose the way of our loving father, of a good, good father who wants the best for us. And then he continues in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You see the answer, the path out of worry, the antidote to all of this is a singular statement right here. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We as followers of him are called to a singular and clear focus on God, on God the Father, the God who cares, the God who provides Throughout this teaching, Jesus has been revealing how his new kingdom looks, a radical encompassing love, people that are set apart to be light to the world, a deep value for all that he has created. And as his followers, we are called first to seek this kingdom, this image, this vision of what is to come, of what he is bringing into the world. And how do we do that? Through our righteousness. And that word is a word that sometimes gets thrown around and is a word that... Um, if you don't know the meaning behind it, it can be one that we gloss over. So I spent a little bit of time with it because it's one that sometimes we say and it becomes a bit of a churchy word from time to time. So what is righteousness? And I found a couple of really beautiful definitions that I think will help us as we move forward. Righteousness is right thinking, feeling, speaking, and behavior on the part of disciples of the kingdom who do what God approves and commands. Righteousness is the outflowing of a life that is centered on submitting to, worshiping and seeking after God and confessing Jesus as Lord. And one of my favorites is from Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the faith, and he said it this way, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness is believing in Jesus Christ and practicing and applying the gospel to which faith clings. And I love that idea, practicing and applying the gospel to every facet of our life. That's but he is calling these new members of his kingdom to his followers to do. And the image through all of that has been coming to me and that has really sunk in and that I have been sitting with in these weeks leading into this is this idea of catching the father's eye, of catching his attention, that we are to live out the singular focus 
and all of it is drawn to catching the attention of our loving father. I'm a dad. I'm a father. I have three kids. I have a nine-year-old daughter, or almost nine-year-old daughter in a couple of weeks, and a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. And one of the most common things that you hear around my house, and if you work with any kids, you are familiar with this phrase, watch me. Come see this. Watch me. They want me to see what's cool, new trick they've learned. They want to see or show off a skill. They want to give me the same fact that they've repeated 15 times that I'm going to continue to be excited about each time, right? Because it's important that I pay attention. They want my attention. They want my eye. They want to know that I'm proud and they encourage them on. And I want to do it because I remember when I was young that this was a big deal, that a teacher or a parent, someone paid attention. And so I want to do the same for them. I want to see every cartwheel. I want to see every joke. I want to hear every little fact that they learned. I want to hear every underarm fart noise that they've come up with. I want to see every silly face. You know when kids learn that one and it doesn't stop for a while. But I'll tell you what's really awesome. What has been really amazing is when they catch my eye and they don't know that I'm looking. It's those moments when they do the right thing and they have no idea I'm watching. And it is so beautiful and it melts my heart and it draws me so close to them. Seeing them do the right thing when they don't know that I'm watching. To to serve their sibling in a way that is meaningful to them. To give up the seat in the car that they really wanted because someone was having a bad day. To offer a hug when someone gets hurt. uh, To say a kind word to hear a story from their teacher or their base camp teacher about something that they've done, a kindness that they've shown in class. Um, A few weeks ago, someone came up to me after service and they said, hey, did you uh, hear that I saw your kids at Chick-fil-A? Which all of my alarm bells go off because if any of you have kids or work with kids, you know that Chick-fil-A is the place we go to put them in what we call the scream room, which is also known as the playground there. It is a glass box that kids can go play in while the adults talk and they get to have a great time. And I'm thinking, what in the world did they see my kids do? And I'm thinking, oh, oh, good. You saw them. I did not hear about that. Could you tell me more? And I'm thinking, um, well, Maverick was just going through a potty word phase, so that's not good. Um, What did they do? And my friend told me, he said, uh, your wife doesn't know me. We go to the, to the campus and we, we've known you, but AJ knows my kids and AJ is my oldest daughter and AJ comes with me early every Sunday. She helps at church. She gets base camp set up and she loves kids. She just loves them. And so she uh, had seen them at church. She knew them. And, and, and when they got to, to the Chick-fil-A, AJ uh, saw their, their child, about two-year-old, and invited their child into the playground with him and started caring for them. And they got to sit and have a meal together, the husband and wife that were there. And AJ, they said they were watching through the glass and she's just playing with him. AJ has no idea that we're watching. Rachel has no idea who this is. And they said it was just so incredible to have their kid cared about by someone else from church, to have someone come alongside that they trusted, that loved them. And I was so proud of AJ. She caught my eye. And she didn't even know it. I think this is what God wants. He wants us to catch his eye, that we repeat these actions, that we apply the gospel to our life in such a way that we are catching his attention, that our attention and our focus is so singularly focused on him that we are constantly catching our eye. And I think that is what this righteousness looks like as we practice it day after day that we'd have a proper view of the high value of people in God's kingdom, that every person that God has created, that throughout the first part of this message that Jesus has raised every person's dignity to the highest possible level and how we care for and love one another is a big deal in the kingdom. And then we live it out in this quiet, focused life towards God as we focus on his attention and his affection on giving to those in need 
praying to him and being in relationship with him, reading his scripture, fasting, using our money for his kingdom, submitting to God and trusting him alone. This, this is the path out of worry, to catch our father's eye now, to singularly focus on him and the worry will go away. And in verse 33, it continues as he says, and all will be given to you as well. See, God cares so deeply about his kingdom and his people that to those who will have this deep faith and singular focus on God and will seek out his kingdom and his righteousness and practice and apply the gospel to every aspect of their life, God will take care and provide for all that they need. And it doesn't just say that he'll take care of some of what you need. He says he'll take care of all that we need. The thing is, though, as we hear that, as we experience it, that does not always come true in the material needs in our life, that we might need to change our definition about what all these things that we need are. You see, if we're to look different from the world in its pursuit of food and drink and clothes, then maybe, just maybe, what will be given to us will look different as well. Whenever we fully seek God, our circumstances don't always change, but we always do. In our pursuit of him, we will always change if we remain singularly focused on him. And maybe the things he provides that we need are found in the people he puts in our lives, the groups he offers us to join, the counselors that we can meet to help us through our different parts of our life and help us grow, the medication that allows us to pursue him more fully. Maybe our needs are met as we more fully participate in his kingdom and not just in the passive receiving of the basic needs of our life. If we have been seeking God to get the security from the things we need, then we may not have been singularly focused on God in the right way, but focus on him and his kingdom. See, the things, the food, the drink, the clothes, those are not the antidote to worry. Getting what we need doesn't decrease the anxiousness about tomorrow. The singular focus on God, the catching his attention, that is what releases us from our worry understanding that he is a good, good father who cares for us and that wants to be in relationship with us and that will take care of us, that is the relief valve in our life. And then he wraps it up with this in verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not worry about tomorrow thing is, you and I, we have control of this moment alone. The past, the past is done. And we can repent, we can ask forgiveness, we can celebrate, but it is over. In the future, the future isn't promised our next breath, our next moment, our next hour, our next day. None of it is promised. What we have is now. We have this moment. And this passage is about you now. In this moment and for you. Because each moment we have a choice. Will you trust God, the creator and the provider? Will you in this moment trust him to be who he says he is, who he has continued to be through time? Or will you trust yourself and your stuff and your plan? Will you seek his attention or the world's? And here's the thing. This is daily hourly by the minute work for me because I like my stuff. I love my kids. I cling tightly to my plans. I put a lot of faith in my retirement plan and my calendar and my skills and my abilities. 
I like to be liked. I, my, it's real. I put myself at the center of so much of it, and that is not the antidote to it. Focusing on God is, and I know this is true, because I know that when I'm focused on God, when I'm seeking his attention clearly and singularly, I know when this is happening because life works. And the veil between heaven and earth gets a bit thinner. And I care well for those around me. And I'm seeking his eye more than my neighbor's. And it isn't always easy, but it's always good. And it isn't always happy and up to the right, but it is always joyful. So what do you need to do? Do you need to take steps in your prayer and devotional life? Do you need to seek him more in the quiet and in the conversation of your heart? Start praying. Spend time with him. We have a gospel reading plan that we're doing here. Get it. It's online. You can get it on your way out. Spend some time with it. You will not be disappointed to get to know him more. It will change your life being in relationship with him. Do you need to take steps in your financial life? Are you still wrestling with John's sermon from last week and you're still thinking about what you're supposed to do? Do it. Take the step. You will not regret it. Do you need to fully submit to God? Have you never really fully taken that step? Do you need to take a bold step? Do you need to plant a flag in the ground and fully trust him for the first time ever? Next week, we have baptism. We're going to the beach. Take the step. If he is stirring in your heart and you need a place to be able to say God is at work, let us take that step with you and celebrate alongside of you. For all of us, uh, we have a very practical next step. And that next step is communion. It's a very tangible act of submitting to God, of coming to the table, of admitting our need for God and needing his grace and his forgiveness, of accepting it and the promise of the new life that he offers through his death and resurrection, a very practical surrendering of the next moment, of trusting God with ourselves and our lives and our future. You see, the next breath and the next moment isn't promised, but we can offer God this very one. And in it, find a release from our worry and place our trust in the one who has and does and will continue to provide all that we need. Let's pray. God, you know us. You know how we're wired and you know what we bring to the room and you know what is in our heart and you know the worry that is deep within each and every one of us, and you know the question that has been in our soul from the beginning of time of where do we put our trust. And God, I pray that you would join us. God, continue to let us ask you big questions, and God, keep stepping up to them. God, I pray that we would bring to you every need and that we would see you provide. God, I pray that we would singularly and clearly focus on you that we would give our hearts and our minds and our attentions to you, Lord. Because when we do, you promise that you will take them on and you promise that you will be right there with us in the midst of them and that you will provide what we actually need and that our lives will look different because of you. God, continue to meet us as we take this step of communion. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.